You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Welcome back to the Theology and Apologetics podcast. On today's episode, we are looking at the subject of defending the faith and in particular, answering objections from those who feel there's no value in apologetics at all. So sit back, listen and enjoy. We'd just like to remind you that this is a listener-supported podcast. We do need your support, so please become a Patreon supporter for exclusive benefits and gifts at Patreon forward slash Theology and Apologetics. So, let's get into our subject today. Although the field of biblical apologetics has come a real long way in recent years, there are still a number of those within the Christian community who do object to its presence at all. And usually I would say that this is due to a number of misunderstandings about the apologetic endeavour, and I'm hoping that this podcast will be an in-depth look at some of these issues and will bring some real clarity and light to this subject today. Now, before we go any further, let's just define what we mean by this word apologetics, just to make sure that uh, we're all clear as we go forward. Because before we look at answering the objections to apologetics, I want us to be very clear about what we're actually dealing with before we obviously handle the objections. Quite often, this just looking at what apologetics is removes actually a lot of these objections themselves, which I do believe are born from a misunderstanding So let's look at what is apologetics. The most simple uh, stripped down definition would be this. It is a rational defense of the Christian faith, one that uses arguments and reason to defend the truths of Christianity. Apologetics is not new. It's been around since the New Testament times, I would argue. Often we read of the Apostle Paul. It says in uh, places like Acts 17 that he is seen reasoning, defending, contending and giving evidence in the synagogues whilst he's preaching and teaching. Much of the New Testament itself was actually written to correct aberrant teachings that were around at that time. Think of the epistle to the Galatians. This was written to combat the Judaizers, the legalistic doctrine that was being proposed by them. Think of Colossians. The argument in Colossians is against the uh, Gnostic beliefs of the uh, first century. The church fathers in the second century people like Irenaeus. He wrote his book Against Heresies, which is another explanation and critique of Gnosticism from a Christian perspective. We have Justin Martyr. He wrote two books called The First and Second Apology, and they were actually written to a pagan emperor explaining the value of Christianity and why it is superior to the Roman gods and myths. And then he also wrote something called Dialogue with Trypho, which is an interreligious dialogue and debate with a Jew named Trypho. All of these are examples of apologetics. Then we have Augustine. He wrote his famous work, The Confessions, which in many places is really just an argument from personal experience and testimony. Uh, It's much more than that, but that is uh, part of it. And then he had this famous quote, didn't he, where he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. What about Thomas Aquinas? He had the famous five ways, five ways that uh, five arguments for God's existence. This is all early apologetics. So it's not a new discipline. It's been around a long time. But that is what we mean when we say apologetics, a rational defense of the Christian faith. Now, why do we do apologetics? This is a much more interesting question. I want to give us five reasons here that I think will be informative. The first reason is simply this, to defend the truth of Christianity i.e. that is to show that Christianity is a reasonable and rational worldview. 
We want to demonstrate the superior explanatory power of the biblical worldview, because all worldviews, whether religious or non-religious, attempt to explain reality. And if their explanation is not comprehensive, then that shows a deficiency in the worldview. And we believe that Christianity has a total worldview, i.e. that it can explain all the areas of life and reality. That's the first reason, defending the truth of Christianity. The second reason why we do apologetics, to refute accusations against the faith. This is um, charges that have come against us over the years. Things that claim believing in Christianity is unreasonable or that it requires you to leave your brains at the door. The, the common claim that the Bible is full of mistakes or the more modern popular claim on the internet that the resurrection and the Jesus story is just a ripoff of an Egyptian mythology. All of these are accusations that need to be answered and this is the job of apologetics just like they did in the early church. The third reason is actually to convert those who disbelieve. You see, all of our apologetic endeavour seeks to bring people closer to the kingdom. We do this by removing intellectual roadblocks or emotional roadblocks. We do this by presenting persuasive arguments. Persuasion is a good uh, art form in evangelism too. Paul was often seen persuading people with the strength of his arguments to accept the gospel. These two things, evangelism and apologetics, are very much linked. And it's a mistake of us to actually separate them into completely different fields. That's another reason. So number three, convert those who disbelieve. Number four, we do want to strengthen the faith of believers. And apologetics does this. It can be incredibly encouraging to be presented with all the evidence to support the Christian faith, whether it's historical, archaeological, philosophical arguments. All of these things help us to be confident in our faith. It helps equip people to be salt and light so that we may speak truth into a culture that is often very hostile to it. This is a very important part of apologetics. And then number five, I've put this down as impacting the culture. And what I mean by this is that we equip people within the church to speak intelligently and to proclaim the Christian worldview into the institutions and places of influence and power in the world today, into the courts and the legal professions and the universities. And by doing this, we have a huge impact on the larger culture. So all of these are just some of the reasons why we want to be involved in apologetics. So I'm really mystified as to why people object to apologetics after looking at these reasons. However, they do. But let's go a little bit further. There are a number of different methodologies, different ways to do apologetics that have been popular over the history of Christianity. And I'm not going to, to really make an argument for one particular view here. I just want to sketch them out for you very quickly. So the first methodology is called classical apologetics. And this uses arguments for God. And then it will make an argument for, say, the reliability of the Bible. It'll make an argument for the historicity of Jesus and then use historical evidences to argue for the resurrection of Jesus. Classical apologetics utilises general revelation according to Romans 1, 19-20. It also utilises philosophical and historical arguments. It, it looks at things like the cosmological arguments, the teleological, the moral arguments. It's a very uh, popular method of apologetics, famously espoused by people like R.C. Sproul, William Lane Craig and uh, Norm Geisler. All of these were classical apologists, each with their own different slant and different theological beliefs, but basically engaged in classical apologetics. The second major methodology is what we would class as evidential apologetics. Some might say historical apologetics. And this is really the view that events in Christianity can be proved through historical argument alone and without the need for any prior arguments for God's existence. Not that they necessarily won't use arguments like that, but this is what evidential apologetics focuses on. Modern proponents of this would be Gary Habermas and more recently J. Warner Wallace. 
The third methodology is what we would call presuppositional apologetics. Instead of this is different to classical apologetics, instead of using arguments for God, presup apologists argue from God. So they would presuppose the truths of Christianity as that which makes coherent sense, the rules of logic, the way that we can even think and reason and argue, they say, is all borrowing from the Christian worldview. And generally, it's people of a reformed persuasion that hold to uh, presup apologetics. Some of the famous uh, people who are pioneers of this view, Cornelius Van Til, Gordon Clark, John Frame, and it has many adherents today. The next view I've put down here is reformed epistemology. Now, some would argue this is not an actual methodology of apologetics in itself. It's more of a statement about epistemological preferences, and that's I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. The most famous proponent of this today would be Alvin Plantinga. He's basically arguing that belief in God is a properly basic belief, therefore you are justified in believing it without necessarily having any supporting arguments. It is properly basic, and it's worth reading his work on that. And then... The fifth methodology that I've put down here is actually I'm just going to call it the eclectic approach and you find this a lot in apologetics. This is someone and I'll admit I, I my tendencies are to lean in this direction. I'm happy to actually at certain times use arguments from all of these methodologies quite often depending on the audience that I'm speaking to. You can use testimonial apologetics, scientific, comparative religions, philosophical arguments, historical arguments. I find there's a place for all of these in fact and they all add to the richness of the field of Christian apologetics. So that is the why and some of the methodology there. Now let's look at the biblical commands. We call this the biblical mandate for apologetics. We'll go through a few scriptures and just pull out some points from these as we go. The most popular verse to do with Christian apologetics is 1 Peter 3 verses 15 and 16. Let me just read this to you now. 1 Peter 3 15. But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's pull out a few comments on this. It says, honour, or you could say sanctify, some of your Bibles might write there, Christ the Lord as holy. Christ as holy, i.e. he is God, he is deity. And the point of this is, we do honour him by how we live. How we live is very important to our witness. And there's no point being a good apologist, having good arguments, if your life is betraying what you say. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes that we are letters of Christ read by all men. So we have to honour Christ. That is one of the first things we need to understand when we do apologetics. I find many people want to just jump into the deep intellectual arguments. And this is probably what gives apologetics a bad name. Firstly, we need to make sure we have Christ in his proper place as we engage in the apologetic endeavour. It then says, always be prepared. The word prepared speaks of being equipped, being informed, being studied, being forearmed. This requires discipline. This means we're going to spend time engaging with worldviews, engaging with the text, learning our theology. We have to do all of this if we're going to be apologists. And it then says, be prepared to make a defence. And the word in Greek there is the term apologia, which is where we get the actual uh, definition of apologetics from. The word literally means to make an argument in defence of something. And in this case, uh, defence of the Christian worldview. It also says, make a defence to anyone. So that gives us our audience for apologetics. It's suitable to, for all, those from other religious worldviews, those who have no religious proclivities at all, and even to those in the Christian church who may disagree with us. Apologetics is for everyone. And it says, be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason 
for the hope. So it's a reason. We do have good reasons. Why are we a Christian? That is a question we need to ask ourselves. Now, most people, when someone says, why are you a Christian? They answer, and this is a, this is, we need to be careful with this. They answer how they became a Christian. But that's not the question. We need to understand that the question quite often is, why are we a Christian? Why are we convinced by the person of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel? And this is something we deal with in apologetics. And then it says a reason for the hope. What is the hope? Quite simply, it's Jesus Christ and Christianity. All of our apologetics should flow to the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily have to preach the gospel and preach Christ in every single apologetic engagement for it to be successful. Quite often the Lord will bring someone else along to do that. Sometimes your apologetic conversation may simply be one part of the journey. You may remove one objection that they have to looking at the cross and that is a successful apologist. And then it says, and this part's also very important, do it with gentleness and respect. I believe we need to take this really seriously, especially those who operate online. How we say it is as important as what we say. That's what this text is getting at. So that's 1 Peter 3, 15. The next verse I want to draw to your attention is Jude chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. So here we see Jude wanting to write a doctrinal treatise about salvation, but he finds it more important at this stage to write to them appealing that they contend for the faith. That is, they defend the body of truth that was delivered down by the apostles because people have crept in and they are teaching destructive heresies. So in this text here, we see the need to be a good theologian in order to be a good apologist. I think all these disciplines are linked in some ways. Although we separate them and classify them for our own study, which is helpful, they're all linked. So we need to be able to clarify Christian truths correctly. And I would say a big part of apologetics is actually just explaining clearly what it actually is Christians believe. And this can be a very effective way of doing apologetics. So that's Jude verses 1 verse 1 to 3. Let's look at another text now. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. It says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We destroy speculations, or the word there could be translated arguments, that are raised up against the knowledge of God. You see, the specific challenges that every generation faces do change, but the command to challenge them if they seek to misrepresent God or come against the knowledge of the truth is the same. We are to destroy these arguments. This was the, the mandate that the first century church fathers used. They were combating the Gnostic ideas of dualism. We see this all throughout the medieval period as it was a Catholic dogma that was quite often the issue there. Let's jump nearer to our time in the post-Enlightenment period. You had sceptics like David Hume, you had a hard naturalism anti-supernaturalism. This is where people objected to anything metaphysical such as God or the spirit realm. You had the Darwinian revolution in 1859 with the origin of species. This led on to the hard atheism of Nietzsche with the God is dead philosophy. Today you could argue we still have Darwinian materialism, we have the new atheism, we have still have anti-supernaturalism. We also have the ideas of other worldviews like Islam and Buddhism and new age spirituality. All of these things are raising themselves up against the knowledge of God and therefore we need to 
to speak truth. And it says we need to take our thoughts captive to Christ, i.e. Jesus's words that we worship him with all our heart, soul and mind. It's all connected and very important. Let's look at another verse, Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now we need to be careful with this verse. This is not a blanket warning against using philosophy. It's actually impossible, I believe, not to use philosophy when you're engaging in discussions with other worldviews. Now some have followed the church father Tertullian in his famous comment where he said, What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? Most Christian thinkers, however, thankfully have followed Thomas Aquinas and they've actually seen philosophy as a useful handmaiden to theology. Paul was warning against philosophies and worldviews that were not built on the biblical assumptions but on human wisdom. He calls them the traditions of men. Like what was being propounded at Colossae in the first century, similar to many of the philosophies we see today that underpin our modern worldviews and ideologies, atheism, postmodernism and all these relative concepts of truth, all of these things are traditions of men that we need to take seriously. So I would agree with C.S. Lewis, who famously said that good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The warning is to make sure that our wisdom is built upon a biblical foundation, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2. So I would say Christian philosophers should be daily in the book of Proverbs 2. Let's look at one more text. Philippians 1.7 the Apostle Paul writes, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Now notice the way he links defence and confirmation of the gospel together. You see, he's basically saying that by defending the faith, by defending the gospel you are actually confirming it, i.e. proclaiming it. So good apologetics is very much connected with gospel preaching and evangelism. Even if it may seem like they are two worlds apart, they're not. The truth of Christianity, it may take different forms, but the two should never really be separated. So now hopefully I, I, I've given you a little bit of data to prove that apologetics must not be dismissed so glibly. Now let's look at some of the arguments that people raise about why they don't want to use apologetics or why they consider it unnecessary and, and I think this will be very illuminating for our audience. So arguments against apologetics. We're going to look at five objections. Objection one, you cannot argue anyone into the kingdom. You hear this a lot and I would say that it actually betrays a complete misunderstanding about the apologetic endeavour. It basically assumes that apologetics is just all about winning arguments. And within this objection, though, there is a lesson for people who engaged in apologetics. We do need to make sure that's not what we're in it for. We're not just interested in being clever and winning arguments. I believe if you do that, you're demeaning the whole enterprise. But I do appreciate the sentiment, but I do believe it's patently false. Now, yes, if you mean it is only the gospel that saves by that statement, you cannot argue anyone to the kingdom, I would agree. No apologist would deny that. It's only the gospel that saves. But the evidence does indicate that arguments in favour of Christianity are one way that God uses to reach his people, to reach people. Think of Augustine and Aquinas and C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel and J. Warner Wallace, and the list could go on. Lee Strobel has said that he's lost count of the amount of people who've come to faith through his apologetics books, A Case for Christ and A Case for Faith. You've probably read some of them. 
As Cornell professor and literary critic David Dakes remarked, more have been converted through Lewis than in the British revival campaigns of Billy Graham. And Lewis and Strobel, they wrote apologetic material. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, nearly everyone I know who has embraced Christianity in adult life has been influenced by what seemed to him to be at least a probable argument for theism. And that's quite a, a strong statement there. And then looking at it from another direction, Peter Kreeft in his Handbook of Christian Apologetics, he says this, Arguments may not bring you to faith, obviously meaning that it's of course only the gospel. He goes on, but they can certainly keep you away from faith, therefore we must join the battle of arguments. And I think that's absolutely correct. So for me, that objection just falls flat. I believe it's patently false and evidence is completely contrary to that statement. So let's look at another objection now. Objection two. The Bible does not need to be defended. It is like a lion. Now, you may have heard this objection raised with a popular quote that's attributed to Charles Spurgeon that goes something like this. The Bible is like a lion. How would you defend a lion? You open its cage and leave him to defend himself. And although I really do appreciate the sentiment, I believe this statement is more indicative of someone with a high view of scripture, which I obviously share. But the whole caged lion philosophy that's come from this sort of comment, I believe, is unhelpful. Because it somehow implies that we just passively let loose the Bible. I believe this actually devalues the medium through which God has ordained its spread, i.e. Christian preaching, Christian writing, Christian apologetics. We need to do more than just quote the Bible. Not that I deny quoting the Bible can bring people to, to faith. It's living and active. But it does say many places that we need to explain it too. Jesus did this on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Presumably, this explanation involved more than just simple quotations. Do you remember when Ezra was conducting that national Bible study in Nehemiah chapter 8? He read the law and then it says in the text that the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. So there was an explanation of the law happening. Acts chapter 8, verse 27 to 31, the famous story of the Ethiopian eunuch. It says that he was reading the scriptures, but he needed someone to explain it to him. Let me just read this text to you. 8 verse 27. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting on his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the spirit said to Philip, go and join him in his chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How could I unless someone guides me? And then the explanation comes. You see, Paul is often seen doing more than simply reading the scriptures. In Acts 19 verse 8, it says he entered the synagogue, speaking boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, reasoning and persuading would be the sort of words you'd find associated with someone making apologetic arguments. From the scriptures, yes, within his own first century Jewish context there, of course, but he is still reasoning and persuading, not just coming and simply reading the scriptures to them. Why I object to this cage lion philosophy is that I believe the way it's been applied, but what it actually equates to in the real world is that people come with questions to their pastors and their leaders, and they're met with comments like, you don't question, 
don't try and defend the Bible, it shows a lack of faith. And therefore, honest and good questions are then considered to be a sign that you don't have a high view of Scripture or that you're somehow deficient in your faith. And this puts people off. And therefore, if they do not get their questions answered in church, they go to the world and the world gives them a very different answer. So I would say the cage lion philosophy is really just an excuse sometimes to avoid the tough questions coming from the culture. And this is definitely not what the apostles or the early church would have proposed. So therefore, this objection fails for me too. Objection three. Paul dismisses apologetics in his letter to the Corinthians. Let me read to you the text that's often quoted. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 2 to 5. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, let me just explain to you how this objection is usually phrased, the way it's framed when it's uh, raised. People argue that in Acts 17, when Paul was on Mars Hill, he tried apologetics. Now, notwithstanding that that's actually a tacit admission that you do find apologetics in the Bible. However, leaving that to one side, they would argue that Paul was not successful on Mars Hill when he was trying to engage in apologetics. So therefore, by the time he got to Corinth, he decided he was just going to preach the gospel. And this verse that we just read is an explanation of why he decided to make that decision. However, I believe that is not the full context of this verse. As always, we need to look at the historical context in Corinth to understand the intent of the author. Historical studies have been made that are offering very convincing arguments that Corinth was actually a major centre for the Second Sophist movement. The Sophist orators were an active force in two major cities, I believe it was Athens and Corinth at this time, and they were both centres of commerce and education in the first century. In fact, many would argue that the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians are a critique of this second sophistic movement. The first sophists were those philosophers at the pinnacle of Greek civilization, but this fell into decline, and then under the Romans, the Greeks made a valiant attempt to revive their classical culture, which gave rise to the second sophist movement. Now, one of the schools of Greek sophistry gave it a bad reputation. Philostratus, who was a sophist writing in the 3rd century, described it as this. He said it is flowery, bombastic, full of startling metaphors, too metrical, too dependent on tricks of rhetoric and too emotional. He called it theatrical shamelessness. That is what characterised the second sophistic movement. They were not so much just philosophers, they were like a travelling circus or exhibitionists, we might call it. They would go from city to city to entertain people with their rhetorical skills. This is the contrast. Paul is saying, I want to let truth speak for itself. I do not want to manipulate rhetoric to sway his audience to appeal to, his, to people's opinions. That's really the setting of his comments and his writings in Corinthians. You see, the Romans put a very high emphasis on public speaking and rhetoric as a skill. The high class in society, educated people, uh, senators, politicians, administrators, magistrates, artists, even soldiers could be trained in rhetoric. It was a considered a valuable skill to have. This was a skill of the educated people, though, of people in positions of power and the upper class. In contrast with the Christians, of whom Paul writes, not many were wise by worldly standards, powerful or of noble birth, 1 Corinthians 1.26. In comparison, they were the foolish things which shamed the wise, the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are.
1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28. So when these traveling orators arrived, they would usually be preceded by a big marketing campaign and they were expected to speak favorably of the people and of the city and of the leaders and the magistrates. They would be gift giving to each other between the speaker and the leaders. Their performance was more like a theatrical production than what we would think of a sermon or a lecture or something like that. The crowds were there. They wanted to be entertained and amused. They wanted to have their emotions stirred. They wanted to receive a positive message about their myths and their religions and their beliefs. That is the context. And as for Paul, he says, I resolved to know nothing among them except Christ. He was clearly not prepared to speak about the Greek myths or butter up leaders and magistrates. Anthony Thistleton, who's written one of the most in-depth commentaries on 1 Corinthians, he comments like this. He says, what we now know of the rhetorical background at Corinth releases Paul of any hint of an uncharacteristic or obsessional anti-intellectualism or any lack of imagination or communicative flexibility. His settled resolve was that he would do only what served the gospel, regardless of people's expectations or seductive shortcuts to success, most of all the seduction of self-advertisement. Neither then nor now does the gospel rest on the magnetism of big personalities. So this is the context. So now let's review those words that we read at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1 to, 7, 1 to 5 with that background. And here I'm going to read a translation that is actually offered by Thistleton in his commentary. So verse 1, he's, he puts it like this. As for me, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with high-sounding rhetoric or a display of cleverness in proclaiming to you the mystery of God, for I did not resolve to know anything to speak among you except Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. I came to you in weakness, with much fear and trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with enticing clever words, but by transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Holy Spirit, that your faith should not rest on human cleverness, but on God's power. So he's not making an argument against apologetics, because Paul clearly uses this elsewhere. What he is saying, that in contrast to these Greek sophists, these philosophers, these trained rhetoricians, that he is not going to use this spectacular speech to win over the crowds. He's going to rely simply on the spirit and the gospel to do that. And I don't think you'd find an apologist today who would deny any of that. Therefore, again, this line of reasoning that Paul dismissed apologetics in this quote is so far from the context that it must be laid to rest. Let's look at objection four. The natural man cannot understand the things of God, so why bother? And this objection is usually raised with the quotation from 1 Corinthians 2.14 that says this, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Therefore, the way this objection goes, that they read that verse, and then they say, well, there's no point in apologetics, because the natural man cannot understand them. Now again, I think this is just a misuse of this particular verse, taking it out of context and applying it to modern day apologetics. It's a similar issue to the previous one with the Corinthian epistles that we looked at earlier. Let's be clear of what this text does and doesn't say. The text says this man does not receive or accept the truth. It doesn't say that he doesn't perceive it. I've actually heard some pretty good gospel explanations or written explanations of the gospel by those who don't believe it, but they have taken the data and explained it in many ways. Now, we can argue that they don't fully understand it, I get that. But the word there where it says does not accept, this is the Greek word dikomai, and it means to welcome. And this is important because Paul elsewhere argues that basic truths about God are clearly seen through creation, and they can be understood 
so much so that people will be without excuse when they stand before the Lord. This is general revelation. However, yes, you need special revelation and the Spirit of God to produce a salvation experience. So it says they will not welcome it. This is talking about the moral consciousness that blocks the gospel. They don't open the door to it. They have it closed. They will not accept the gospel. Even if they understand what it's saying, they are in rebellion against the Lord at this time. It's also saying that we cannot understand or special revelation and the salvation experience cannot be produced and accomplished by the natural man. It also implies that the content of this wisdom is revealed scriptural truths, something that cannot be acquired but through the Spirit of God. However, this is really not talking about people using apologetic arguments to show the reality and the truth of the Christian worldview. The real problem here is that unbelievers do not want to accept the gospel. In the text when it says cannot understand in the NASB I read it from, something like the King James puts it like this, nor can he know them. It's talking about knowledge here. The Greek word is nosko, which means to know by experience. So what this text is saying is that the natural man has no experiential knowledge of the gospel because that is a spiritually appraised situation. It is a working of the Holy Spirit. This is the thought behind Paul's later comment in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we know people can say Jesus is Lord, They can say the words, but they will not be saying it as a saved person with that experiential knowledge of what it means to proclaim Jesus as Lord. That's the point here, because that is the work of the Spirit. The truth is that only those with the Spirit have this salvation experience. Those without the Spirit are not saved. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So that's the first reason there. I think that's a better understanding and explanation of the context of the text there. And secondly, I think people who quote this verse as an argument not to use apologetics just make an assumption that is maybe a bit derivative of our rationalistic enlightenment mindset that apologetics is just simply an intellectual pursuit entirely void of the spirit. However, the biblical apologist understands that the Holy Spirit can use apologetics if he so chooses, and it is easy, I believe, from history to demonstrate that he does choose to. The two are not mutually exclusive. As the Spirit-filled Christian is engaging in apologetics, of course they will be praying for their encounters, that the Spirit would use their words, that the Spirit would remove objections, cause the seeds that are planted to grow, send along other people to give them the gospel or whatever it may be. This is all part of what we do when we do apologetics and of course we want the Holy Spirit to be involved in this. We don't want to fall into the trap of pitting faith against reason, rather Proclaim a reasonable faith in the power of the Holy Spirit as the best explanation of reality and keep the gospel at the centre as the only way of salvation. So let's look at objection five. This will be our final objection for this study. And it goes like this. Jesus and the apostles do not use apologetics or some people might say apologetics is not in the Bible. Now, hopefully we've already looked at enough to answer this but let's look at it in a little bit more detail let's go through some text and show what's going on here so let's talk about the apostle paul in thessalonica i mentioned this earlier the text is Acts 17 verses 1 to 3 let's read them now when they had traveled through amphilippus and apollina they came to thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the jews and according to paul's custom he went to them and for three sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this jesus who i'm proclaiming to you is the christ 
Paul used reason in crafting his arguments. He explained and he gave evidence for his claims to support them. That Jesus, ultimately he's arguing for the resurrected Messiah here. Of course, he's making these sorts of arguments in the first century Jewish context. That is different in some of our contexts today. But it's the use of reason and explaining and giving evidence. This is a classic example of apologetics in a first century culture to a biblically literate audience. These Jewish people, they shared the same uh, religious worldview and background. So a lot of this was quite easy. He could jump straight in and use biblical text to make his arguments. However, we also see if we contrast this, when Paul is in front of a biblically illiterate audience, he changes his methodology. When he's in Athens, which is the centre of Greek philosophy, people who do not share a Judaic worldview, he is in a discussion with the philosophers on Mars Hill and we see their reaction to his message. They say, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. He then gives his famous Mars Hill sermon in the Areopagus. He starts with the creation story. This is creation apologetics here. He then quotes their own literature and poets in support of his arguments. This is a common tactic of good cultural apologetics, finding a point of commonality in the culture and using it as a springboard to proclaim the Christian worldview. He then goes on to speak about the creation of mankind, universal state of humanity, the times of ignorance and the need for repentance and faith in the resurrection of Jesus. And then in Acts 17 verse 32, we see the results. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believe, among whom were also Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see here, he is in the centre of Greek philosophy. He preaches and uses apologetic arguments, and this is the result. Some sneer. That's always the case when we preach the gospel. Others were interested. Maybe they'd had a few obstacles removed and they wanted to hear him again, but then others were convinced and they believed his message. This is a very successful example of how powerful apologetics can be. If you think of it in a contemporary perspective, if you went into a hall or a lecture room of Richard Dawkins type atheists and you preached, used apologetics, and if most of them sneered, some of them wanted to hear more, and some of them got saved, that would be a very successful endeavour. Let's look at Jesus. Yes, Jesus used apologetics. Jesus often appealed to miracles, he appealed to fulfilled prophecy, and you often see him using logic and reason in arguing with the religious leaders of his day. So let's look at a couple of texts. Let's look at Jesus's appeal to evidence, because I like this one. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison after confronting Herod? He sent messages, his disciples, to ask Jesus the question, found in Matthew 11 verse 3, Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? And Matthew 11 verse 4 to 6 says this, Go back and report to John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So Jesus' works of healing and teaching are meant to serve as positive evidence of his messianic identity. They fulfill the messianic predictions of the Hebrew scriptures. So what Jesus basically claimed is this. One, if one does certain kinds of actions, those ones cited above, then one is the Messiah. Two, I am doing those kinds of actions. Three, therefore, I am the Messiah. 
That's his reply to John. Now, this is classical syllogistic logical argumentation, as you would find in analytical philosophy. It applies deductive reasoning to arrive at a conclusion based on a number of propositions that are asserted to be true. It's just a wonderful way to see Jesus use this in the scripture. That's his appeal to evidence. Let me give you one more example. This is Jesus' appeal to testimony. Let me read a passage to you from John 5. Uh, it's quite a long passage. I'll, I'll read most of it just because I want you to see the, the way he appeals to testimony. Verse 31, John 5, 31. He says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me. That the Father has sent me, and that the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me. Let's jump to verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So he appeals to five witnesses in this text. One, the witness of John the Baptist. Two, the witness of Jesus' works. Three, the witness of the Father. Four, the witness of the scriptures. And five, the witness of Moses. Now, appealing to witness testimony is a valid form of evidence. We find witness testimony is very powerful in courtrooms today. This is like what historical apologists do when they talk about the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels. This is the same sort of thing. They get this from Jesus. So these are just a couple of the ways that we see Jesus engaging in things similar to modern day apologetics. Of course, it changes over time, but there is good justification for it in the Bible. So for me, I think we've looked at enough of these objections to show that apologetics is very much a biblical pursuit and we should be engaged in it. All of these objections in my mind fail and hopefully we've had a good look at this and I've explained these to you in a lot of depth now. So we're going to leave that study there. I hope this has been informative and I hope it will give you increased confidence to engage in apologetics, to engage in evangelism, as well as strengthen your personal walks with the Lord. I want to just remind you if you could please help us get the word out by sharing this content, leaving reviews on the podcasts, and you can also follow us on Instagram, theology.apologetics. And please remember to pray for the ministry. And if this has been a blessing to you, consider supporting us financially at Patreon forward slash theology and apologetics. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.